So, Caitlin, what are we canceling today? We are canceling doom posting. I'm here for that. Doom posting makes my brain very sad. We just need to come together and like take a stand on this, I feel like. No doom posting. Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ash Klein. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all of the Panic Ground cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. So, Oliver. Uh-huh. It's finally happened. What? What is it? Tucker Carlson got canceled. Tucker Carlson got canceled? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me more. Fox News let him go. Uh, literally the day before we're recording this. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so, so what's going on? Uh, we don't know exactly the reasons yet. There's a lot of speculation swirling, and I don't want to, like say something now and have it turn out to be not true. Um, I suspect everybody will know why before this episode goes live, but um, it was very sudden. Apparently they were like planning Monday's show when news came down that he was gone. Like they let him know privately like 10 minutes before they announced it publicly, which is very cold and I'm here for it. Messy. (laughs) Extremely messy. (laughs) Okay. Wow. I I'm looking forward to to developments on this. Yeah, we're definitely gonna follow it a little bit and see where it goes. And if anything worthwhile pops up from it, we'll obviously bring it to our listeners. But you know, we might also just let it go. Let it go. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> um. So for today's episode, um, Caitlin sits down with the amazing Catherine Cross, who we had on um, a few months ago and has been one of my favorite guests for a really thoughtful conversation about social media, how we use it, and how it can kind of uh, warp our perception of reality. And I think that it's, it's really worth listening to. So let's get to it. Joining us today is one of my favorite former guests uh, from our Cancel Me Daddy past. Uh, She is a PhD candidate in information technology at the University of Washington and prolifically writes about the sort of intersection of culture and technology. And you all might remember her as Catherine Cross. Catherine, nice of you to join us. <laughs> it's so good to be back, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, the last time you were on, the show was very well received. and It was one of our, I want to say, one of our most listened to episodes to date, just because of the sort of larger meta discussion that we had um, at the time. But we're very excited to have you back. And once again, it was something that you wrote for Wired that really drew our attention. Back to you. You wrote this article and it's titled, When Social Media Presents Only an Unlivable Life, Twitter's Suppression of Trans Joy Can Kill at the Precise Moment We Need to Be Strong. So I've read this article now a couple of times to prep for this, but why don't you sort of uh, give our listeners your TLDR version of 
um, what you were getting at with the story. Oh, certainly. So the gist of it is that obviously we are dealing with a very rough time right now with the political landscape vis-a-vis trans rights. We are experiencing an attempted far-right rollback of our rights, uh, particularly in the US and the UK. And obviously, this has a lot of people stressed out. But the social media landscape magnifies, as it so often does, a bad situation and makes it seem inescapably impossible. It creates this sort of what I call an oubliette of terror, like just echoing people's anxiety, depression, despair back to each other and leaving very little room for joy and hope of any sort. And that, I argue, is actually quite destructive and making it harder to develop the will uh, and to maintain the strength necessary to fight this evil with which we are confronted. One of the passages that jumped out to me is actually a quote from uh, Jillian Brandstetter, who um, is a friend of mine. She does communications for the ACLU, um, used to be with the National uh, Center for Trans Equality. And, uh, you know, she told you, trans joy is most necessary when it feels most impossible. She went on to say, I think there's a sense among some trans folks online that if they ring the bell loud enough, then people will come to help. And that can, combined with just the incentives that are built into a lot of these social media platforms, elevate the most alarmist takes and voices, however ungrounded in reality they might be. I love this passage. Um, because it's something that I, as a, uh, quote unquote, prominent trans journalist have struggled with myself. Um, and that is like, how much is too much, uh, when it comes to what I'm putting out online to my, you know, 70, whatever thousand followers. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, First of all, I want to know like why it is that social media encourages um, the most alarmist type of takes, and 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 then eventually I want to get to sort of where is the balance with all of this. Yeah, there certainly is a lot there, and I just also want to say that I agree. Julian Brandstetter is amazing and wonderful, and. It was one of her tweets that helped to inspire this article, as well as the sociology study by uh, Laurel Westbrook that I cite in there. And, you know, I was glad I was able to preserve so many of her quotes because they were so, so very good. And we had an incredible wide ranging conversation. And what her and I definitely agreed on is that there are powerful incentives to do things that get attention on social media. And one of those things is sort of the proverbial yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, It's very much, uh, I think, profitable for many people to present alarmist takes because they are very attention getting. And we also live in a cynical age where people are afraid to be seen as naive or too optimistic or Pollyannaish. 
because people in power are constantly saying, well, there's nothing wrong. Just go about your life, uh, consume and be merry, even as the world burns around us. Optimism feels almost irresponsible. Uh, but also culturally, I think there's a certain amount of cynicism that's encouraged and rewarded, especially in leftist communities where it gets mistaken for wisdom rather than, you know, sort of the more nuanced forms of pessimism that may be required. And I think that with social media itself, there's a tendency to favor, as I say, these sorts of incendiary conversations rather than something that might be more nuanced. Because even if you disagree with the incendiary take, you're still tempted to argue with it. You're still tempted like on Twitter to quote tweet it or to respond to it. The And the engagement has a sort of positive feedback loop or you know, positive for the platform, negative for public morality, but a positive feedback loop that then elevates those takes, makes them more visible to more people who then elevate them further. And that tends to be the way that this sort of thing goes. So I do think that that's a huge problem. As to how to strike the balance, as you know from your own work, Caitlin, it's extremely difficult because the the landscape is not exactly amenable to straightforward optimism, given the laws that are being mooted or being passed, what's happening in the US and the UK. It does feel like there's a cresting tsunami of public transphobia that is threatening to wash over us. But I think that the way that I've always phrased it is that you don't have to deny the threat in order to look at it with a clear-eyed gaze. Mm -hmm. I think that the, one of the biggest problems that I have with how some discourse shakes out on social media regarding trans rights is that there are people who, in the interest of not using your podcast to start drama, I will not name, but people who have built something of a career for themselves by suggesting that the fight is already over, that you know, not only is this situation with the Republican depredations against trans rights and their attempted institutional capture uh, a huge problem, but they've already won, that it's all over but for the shouting. And no matter what we do, certain, you know, you do the legislative math and X, Y, and Z genocidal outcomes are inevitable. And it's just a matter of counting down the days until we are in the camps. And I think that that sort of perspective is not just unhelpful, but catastrophic, because you're essentially arguing that there is 0% chance of success. You are predicting the future in the worst way possible, and that has a potential to demobilize people, to not only speaking to a community that experiences very high rates of anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation as a matter of course, and saying this stuff, but demobilizing them precisely when what is needed is some candle flames worth of hope to stand up against and fight this stuff, right? I can't promise victory, but I can promise that by saying that we're going to be defeated, that is an outcome that you are helping to ensure. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I find that sort of thing to be the height of irresponsibility. And I appreciate the way that some people like yourself or 
Gillian Branstetter or Ari Drennan have really tried to try to balance the, the sense of responsibility they have to, yes, ring the alarm bells or light the flames of Amandine, but without at the same time terrorizing our own people into quiescence. Uh, and I think that that's the that is the risk that has to be held here because mm-hmm. we are in a pretty tricky situation. There's no doubt about that. But we need to remember that A, there are people fighting it. B, it isn't over. C, history is unpredictable. If it were, there would be quite a few different things that would have happened throughout the course of that history. Uh, and I would also go so far as to say that the only way we can guarantee a chance of victory is by avoiding this sort of doomerism, you know, because all we have in many ways is our will, and we are only as strong as that will. Yeah, I, I think that's really important, and and I hit this point myself uh, several months ago, you know, when you started to see calls of, you know, trans people should get out of XYZ state after that state passed something particularly awful. And mm-hmm. I was operating from the standpoint of, well, not everybody is going to be able to escape. Um, I had just recently moved, you know, from one state to another, mm-hmm. from one part of the country to another. I, I moved back to my, you know, home area of New England and I had to expend a lot of resources to do that. <laughs> and not everybody can do that. So I started thinking of it as, what can we tell the people who cannot leave that state for whatever reason? Whether they have only lived in their town for their entire lives, which, you know, a great many trans people have that experience. Or they, you know, have family that they need to take care of. Or they just literally do not have the resources to flee. Like... We need to have messages for those people beyond just you need to leave the only place that you ever knew or have ever lived in. And I started speaking out about that. (laughs) And a lot of people, like you said, called me naive for, you know, calling it that into question. I'm like, look, if you if you give trans people who are, you know, chronically prone to suicidality, the idea that there is no hope left, what do you think they're going to do? But I'm really interested in, you talk about the work of sociologist Laurel Westbrook. You mentioned her name earlier in our interview, and I'm looking at that particular section of your article as we speak. (laughs) Um, But I'm very interested in sort of how we ended up developing this online culture as trans people. And I was wondering if you could uh, speak to that for us. Oh, yes, certainly. Yeah, Laurel Westbrook's work has been enormously helpful to me, as has their work in sociology with uh, Steph Schuster. They published a paper together recently about uh, operationalizing the idea of joy in sociological Mm -hmm. research on trans people that I wanted to cite in the article, but it was one of the things that got cut. This thing was almost twice as long as it already was. And I think that what Westbrook did usefully, in a profoundly sympathetic way, in a way that I know might rub some people the wrong way. But I came to it with an open mind and was very satisfied with their sincerity, compassion, and their approach. 
looking at what I called in the piece, the long dawn of modern transgender activism, which not coincidentally developed alongside the internet itself. So through the early 1990s and down through the late second Bush administration, basically. And what Westbrook found by reviewing thousands and thousands of activist materials, newsletters, early websites, things like that, is that there was an enormous emphasis on the violence directed at transgender communities. And not just any violence or all violence, but the absolute worst, most grotesque violence. It's the reason that even today, a lot of people know who Brandon Tina is. And at least within the trans community, remember Gwen Araujo. And it's unfortunate in a certain sense because their canonization was directly proportional to the staggering brutality of how they were murdered. Uh, and it, these were truly heinous hate crimes in every sense of the phrase. What Westbrook argues, though, is that by emphasizing this and making it sound as if that particular kind of criminality directed at trans people was more likely than it was that the crimes would all look like that and that they were very likely to happen if you lived your life as a trans person openly, created or laid the seeds of what Westbrook calls the unlivable life, the life lived in permanent terror of the fact that you will not be able to live it out, that the fear of violence became the sort of all-consuming thing. And the reason for this was strategic. Uh, Westbrook analogizes this to how the feminist movement more broadly has conceptualized uh, rape and the possibility of rape and violence happening to women as a writ large, uh, and other social justice movements as well, focusing on hate crimes, focusing on violence, because it gets attention. It tends to lead news stories. It tends to be easily intelligible as a harm against the community, whereas discrimination can be seen as more abstract or debatable, right? It comes down to questions of intent, whereas to be blunt about it, if a person is killed, they are objectively dead. There's less to argue about there. And it's easier for activist groups to sort of coalesce around this as the signature harm visited upon our communities that enables us to then have this standard to rally around and have a big ask to tell the government, you know, stop the violence against us. And it has some power and it has some utility. What Westbrook was interested in was also the way in which it convinced ordinary trans people who connected to this discourse, that we were permanently and always at risk. And I see this all the time to this day, and I know that you have as well, when I see trans women who are white and middle and upper class say, oh, I'm afraid of being murdered, like Gwen Araujo, when in reality, as a demographic, they're extraordinarily unlikely to experience that kind of transphobic hate crime. It's not impossible, but when we look at the enduring and ongoing deaths of uh, trans people, particularly trans women, it's disproportionately trans women of color and trans women of color 
who are often you know, not terribly wealthy in the first place, and there's an intersection of a variety of issues that lead to this uh, degree of violence against them. But also, I do want to take a quick sidebar to say that Westbrook at criticizes, as I have, the fact that we only ever mention trans women of color when they're dead, that as uniquely vulnerable victims of violence. And that was one of the few modifications made to this discourse over the last 20 years was, ah, yes, we need to more heavily emphasize the fact that this violence is disproportionately falling on trans women of color, but then mm -hmm. only mention them in that context. And, you know, as a trans Latina myself, I've always found this to be very frustrating. You know, the, the sort of law and order image of us as, you know, a pair mm -hmm. of heels sticking out of a dumpster, it's dehumanizing in its own right, even as it purports to be sympathetic. So that's sort of the, this history that underlays this. And it's complicated because the violence is real. It's a real problem. But the way that it has been emphasized to the exclusion of all else does have this uh, sort of broad mental health effect on people that leads to an unrealistic perspective of the situation. You know, people call you naive, but I would say that realism requires an accurate assessment of the environment in which you face. And that can include things that are maybe less terrifying or less scary than you feared that they were. Yeah. I, when you were talking about this, I, I remember like this old uh, anecdote or statistic that I think even today is still thrown around that, you know, trans women's life expectancy is under 35 and that came from like this one study of this very narrow demographic of trans women of color. I want to say from Brazil, but I, I don't remember exactly and I don't want to misquote it. So please don't take that as, as fact. But I see it repeated a lot by like these white trans women saying, you know, trans women aren't supposed to live past 35. And it's like, well, that's not true. There's like this myth building that happens in all of this process of online discourse that isn't really doing us any favors and it doesn't seem to get the attention of the allies that I think that we're hoping will get attention for our, from. I guess my next thought is like, how do we move past this state of, like, is there hope to move past this state of fear in our online spaces, particularly on Twitter? Um, which is just Elon Musk's hellhole these days. And if there is, like, how, how can we start moving in this direction? Yeah, I certainly agree with you. And first and foremost about that, I think it was, at least the one I heard was life expectancy of 31 for trans women of color. And that yeah. statistic came out of nowhere, really. I heard it repeated a lot by Dean Spade. And it's very frustrating because it makes us look incompetent for one thing. And then it also just terrorizes everyone who takes it on faith. As to how to get out of this, I think that part of the problem is that we are spending too much time on social media engaging with this stuff. Now, the reasons for this are complex. Some people live in places where, say, Twitter is the only place that they can find some version of trans community. They may live in a rural area or a town or a small city where 
they can't connect with the local queer community or there isn't much of one to speak of or there aren't any trans people they can relate to in the area. And to say, well, just cut yourself off from the one place you have found community, I understand is a bit churlish. So I understand that. But I think that if you're not in that exact situation, you do need to think very carefully and very intentionally about what you're doing and what you're getting out of constant engagement on social media. Is arguing with TERFs constantly and thereby vastly overemphasizing the role that their words and beliefs play in your life and your sense of how numerous they are really worth it to you? Is that actually mm -hmm. doing anything? And, you know, I hear people say, and I've said myself many times, oh, when I argue with idiots on the Internet, I'm not hoping to change their minds. I'm just hoping that normies in the audience will see blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, right? And there's truth to that. But that still is a choice that requires a degree of strategy about when and how you're doing something like that. In general, you have to consider the fact that what you may be showing your audience is just yet another, you know, screaming mouth of Sauron of transphobia, right? Is that worth it? Is it worth elevating? I've seen some people, some high follow accounts argue with people that had literally one follower oh i'm guilty of that i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't tr actually trying to call you <laughs> i have definitely done that yeah, yeah surprise caitlin i've come to cancel you <laughs> on your podcast um yeah i mean look it happens to the best of us uh, and I think it's worth just remembering, you should check that sort of thing. Like, how much of a return on investment are you giving this person you're arguing with? And sometimes the answer is a huge, huge return on investment. And you need to be very thoughtful and intentional about that. But even, you know, if you're in arguing with, say, a very high follow account, like, I don't know, picking a name out of a hat, Matt Walsh, how worthwhile is it to keep blasting his particular brand of grifting bullshit into people's feats, right? Because that's what you're doing when you quote tweet him. Mm -hmm. And sure, sometimes you get a really effective dunk or mm -hmm. you mock him with a special wit or you ratio him. Sure, that's always fun and funny in the abstract. And I've liked a lot of those tweets myself in the past. But is that actually showing us anything that we really need to see? Is it worth it putting that in the faces of so many people who are already terrorized by this stuff? Because one of the things that I think, and this is really important, and I forgot to mention this earlier, is that social media skews our perceptions of how popular certain points of view can be, for good and for ill. But in this case, very much for ill. The number of people who sincerely hold the beliefs of J.K. Rowling or your average garden variety Twitter turf or someone who thinks that you know, Michael Knowles is a genius, whatever, they're not actually terribly significant as a percentage of the population. But Twitter makes these people seem much more numerous than they are. If you think about seeing 10 tweets in sequence, that can feel like, oh, this point of view must be very popular. But assuming that they are 10 discrete people, 
that's 10 people out of millions in any given policy. And you have to contextualize that appropriately. But Twitter can make you feel like you're absolutely surrounded by these hateful people. And the way that some online trans activists engage with them amplifies that sense of ubiquity, right? Like, I know because I still, I don't post on Twitter anymore, but I do still skim it periodically. Uh, because I follow so many trans activists, I know way too much about the latest crap that Matt Walsh has said. And frankly, I shouldn't without going out of my way to research that for some reason. It's enormously frustrating. And I think that, yeah. you know, there's a role for people in positions of activist leadership to, th to take, to think more critically about how they're engaging, and then for everyone else to log off and touch grass more frequently. Because what gives me joy is, like, I'm going on a date tonight <laughs> with one of my girlfriends, right? When I reconnect with mm -hmm. the physical world, with <laughs> my fiance, with my partners, my friends, my local community, and the community I have online that I speak to in DMs and on Discord and Facebook Messenger, away from the Klieg lights and bright drag of Twitter and open social media. It's a much better, much more nurturing experience that is also more balanced, right? We're worried, but we also don't dwell in and drown ourselves in despair. We live. We live the reminder that this is what we are fighting for. And I think that's worth staying in touch with. Yeah, recently, uh, I I deleted the Twitter app off of my phone recently. I still obviously use the platform, but I'm not like uh, obsessively picking it up all the time and scrolling the timeline. Um, and I've recently connected with this really fantastic group of mostly trans gamers who play Valorant, the first person shooter. Uh, so I've been getting a lot of joy out of that. And I think it's bleeding into my tweets now where I'm like every fourth or fifth tweet is about Valorant or whatever. But I think that's really wise <laughs> advice is to just touch grass. Although refamiliarize myself with that concept of grass. Um, we've had, you know, kind of a wide ranging conversation today, but is there anything else about all of this that you wish I had asked you about? This is something that is rather difficult to talk about, certainly. And you know, I appreciate this simply because of my own background and my history in trans activism. I don't really think of myself as an activist anymore. And I know the way that a lot of like transphobic cis journalists tend to tag us is that any prominent trans person that has said a kind word about themselves is a trans activist rather than their actual job. So I try to be very cognizant of, you know, not arrogating that label yeah. for myself because it's not my full-time job or even a part-time one. But back in the day, it was. I was on the board of the Silvio Rivera Law Project, and I did a great deal more public speaking and far more frequent writing about trans rights. And a lot of that was in line with SRLP's mission to speak out for, with, and alongside other trans and gender non-conforming people of color, people who were engaged in survival sex work, or who were poor, or working class, who were generally not 
sort of, you know, movie star or celebrity type figure or uh, perfectly acceptable to mainstream cis society and so forth. And it gave me an appreciation for the fact that although I consider all trans people to be my sisters, brothers and siblings, that there is sometimes a way in which trans people who never experienced oppression until they came out as trans see and engage with the world as opposed to those that already had some experience of marginalization or oppression before they came out, usually through axes of like class and race and so on. And I find that sometimes the people who find resistance most impossible to envision are those that never had to think about these questions since they were very young, at least until they came out as trans. And that's not their fault. I'm not blaming anyone here at all. I think it's just worth thinking about how your history, how your biography might have shaped how you view the world, what you think of as impossible. One of the things that Jillian and I talked about that I dearly wish that I could have found a place for in the article, but as you can see, it requires so much scaffolding to say in a way that's not going to get people's backs up, is that the trans community writ large has a lot to learn from how black communities have resisted oppression that is in enforced in the most brutal ways by the state, how indigenous communities have done the same, mm -hmm. communities that have dealt with actual genocides and have managed to survive and thrive. There is a lot to be learned there about what resistance looks like, what survival and endurance looks like, to say that it is possible and that there should be some humility. Like if you are a white trans woman programmer for Microsoft or something and you are scared shitless, I understand. But you might be able to find some inspiration and some hope from learning from people with different backgrounds from you that have been here before and that are also, to one degree or another, still here. You know, what a point that Brandstetter made in our conversation as we were talking about all the horrible things that are happening in Texas is that the only reason the infrastructure exists to take trans kids away from their parents is because an infrastructure exists to take away the children of poor people or brown people or indigenous people, right? The, that state mm -hmm. infrastructure exists already and has just had another box ticked next to it to say, now include this subset of minorities. Right. And so I take hope in the fact that this isn't just about trans people. It's about a larger struggle for a more just, more democratic world. And in that, we have much in common with so many more people and much to learn that can give us hope, strength and practical wisdom to deal with the crisis that we now face. You know, I am not saying that we're not staring into the abyss, but if you give up, then the fight is already lost. Your survival is a gift to us all, mm. and it is the first and most important task from which all else will follow. And you reconnect with that through connecting with the joy that your transition has given you, 
because it has for so very many of us. Even after everything that's happened, I would never go back. I have been fully transitioned for, goodness, 14 years now. I would never, ever go back, even knowing what was to come. And that's because I could not have had the life that I've had, even with all the struggles that have attended me since. And I know that's true for the vast majority of us, for nearly all of us. And staying in touch with that is what is going to give you the strength to persevere. That's so great. Thank you for those words. I wanted to make one quick mention. I meant to make this point earlier when you were talking about, you know, the 10 online comments that you see and those are the ones that you remember. And I wanted to have our listeners be on the lookout for images from pro-trans and anti-trans like protests that have been popping up. And you look at these, there's always like 10, Mm -hmm. 15 people on the anti-trans side. And then like the video camera or, or the photos of the other side show up. And it's like the entire town is on the other. (laughs) And it's hard to see that when somebody's calling you slurs online or, you know, saying that you shouldn't exist or that you're a mistake or that you're, you know, a a problem for a sane world. Um, You don't see that, right? But I encourage all of our trans listeners in particular to seek out those images because I, I always get a little bit of hope from that. And it's like, I have no doubt that in the end, we will all win. <laughs> it might not happen in my lifetime. <laughs> and that makes me sad. But the reason that I know that we will win are those images of those vast crowds. This one North England town that just shows up for trans people out of nowhere to like counter some turf rally. That's the reason why I know we will win, because there are good people who are seeing what's happening to us that have our backs. And we don't see that when we log mm-hmm. on to Twitter. We just don't. So, Catherine, as always, uh, absolutely brilliant appearance on the, on the <laughs> pod. Uh, an amazing sophomore appearance, if you will, to borrow from academia. <laughs> and, And we hope to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, I love coming on. I love you both. Thank you so much for having me and for giving me this platform to talk about stuff like this. And how can our listeners uh, continue to follow your work? So this is the part where ordinarily I would plug my Twitter, but there's kind of nothing happening (laughs) there. Like it does still notionally exist, but it's no longer really in use. So I'm going to have to do the Mastodon thing for you all, which is a little bit trickier. But Ooh, that's okay. My handle is at Quine underscore moon. So Q-U-I-N-N-A-E underscore moon, like the celestial body, at wandering.shop. Mm-hmm. So like a shop that wanders okay. around. But yes, that is the server on which I am. And if you like my toots, uh, then you should follow me there. That's great. Well, Catherine, thank you again. You're very welcome. So, Caitlin, are you ready for some out-of-context cancellations? 
Of course, of course. So one of our listeners asked us to cancel getting laid off, which makes me very sad and frustrated because fuck that. Getting laid off sucks. It's really tough. And like our industry journalism is going through it right now. Um, So many talented colleagues are are getting let go. And I, I don't think our listener is a journalist. I'm not sure. I'd have to double check that. But like it, it sucks no matter what. Yeah, we, we feel for you. Um, I hope I hope that that gets sorted out, that you get a new job nice and quick. And I'm sorry that you're going through that. Um, one of our listeners also, um, you know, said that they know that we cancel health insurance a lot, wants to specifically cancel Kaiser Permanente, which, yes. I, I used to be on Kaiser. It's um, all, all healthcare plans are in this economy, in this world. It feels like a, a, a scheme. <laughs> and I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything else because I've looked at that for possible insurance. And I was like too sketched out by the system to try it. Reasonable. We're also going to cancel political donation clickbait. Yeah, I'm here for that. Also, political text messages. Yeah, it's so funny when I get those because it's like, um, it'll be like, Caitlin, Joe Biden is speaking in your area. Would you like to get tickets? And I'm like, I'm a journalist. And I'm like, we'll take you off your list. Thank you. We're also going to cancel other people's exes trying to get to that person through you. That's so, that's so sketchy. Yeah, that's we said it earlier in the episode, but you just got to let it go. Let it go. Oh, no. That means that I have to keep that in the episode. Oh, wrecked, Oliver, wrecked. Keeping on our health theme, we're going to cancel kidney stones allergies and mystery illnesses all all that shit sucks the allergies especially because it's that time of year again <laughs> i don't know kidneys don't sound pretty bad uh, yeah that's true that's true, true so, that yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah. not a good time yeah but yeah allergies are, are are also not a good time <laughs> now if you want us to cancel something for you you can join our discord by becoming a patreon and to do that, it's the $5 a month here. And we also have other rewards like getting episodes early. Or if you just want to tip us and help us become a weekly show, we'd appreciate that too. You can support us and learn about other perks by visiting www.patreon.com slash cancel me daddy. Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Klein, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. D. Peter Schmidt made our theme song and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the members of our Cancelor Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all of their enemies, Meg, Dahlia, and Catherine. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Happy canceling!